This is Rabbi Sharon Brous, Rabbi Adi Kar, where we're dedicated to reinvigorating Jewish community, ritual, and learning, all while laying the foundation for a just and loving society. You're listening to Ikar's podcast, where you can hear our sermons from Shabbat and holidays, our teachings, our guest speakers, basically anything we think worth hearing that we can capture and stream, you can listen to right here. The whole Megillah. I mean, literally the whole Megillah. So thank you so much for being with us. If you were paying attention this morning, which I hope you were, um, you may have noticed that we were speeding through the davening this morning. And Judy, it's not usually like this, I have to say. We like to luxuriate on Shabbos, but we were moving very quickly um, for a really good reason. And that is because we have the incredible blessing on this Shabbat of learning from and with one of the great teachers of Torah alive in the world today, who has flown in uh, from Jerusalem in order to be with us uh, this weekend. Um, Judy Klitzner, it is such an incredible honor to have you with us, Eddie Carr. Um, you you might have heard Judy Klitzner's name in my uh, Rosh Hashanah Day One sermon this year, which was called We Need a Subversive Sequel, which was, uh, a, which was a, a lift up, um, a, tr- a, 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 what do I call it? A, not a send off, a tribute to um, to the incredible Judy Klitzner, who wrote um, an absolutely extraordinary book called Subversive Sequels in the Bible, How Biblical Stories Mine and Undermine Each Other. Um, she is a student of the great Nechama Leibovitch um, and now is the founding board chair of Sacred Spaces. This is an organization that works to systemically address issues of abuse of power in our Jewish institutions. Um, she is a master teacher who is teaching all around the world um, and is right now working on an original um, commentary uh, for Safaria. And we're very excited to see whatever you put out into the world. I know it will will be brilliant. I want to just say um, one more word here about what we're about to do together, because this is going to be a little bit different from the sermon that you usually hear from up in this place or even the short text studies that we sometimes do in the midst of services. We're going to go a little bit deep today. Um, a little bit deeper than we often have the opportunity to. And I have found with my engagement with Torah over the years, like with most things, that you can get a lot from just a surface engagement. But when you are guided by a tour guide or by an art curator, museum curator, or by someone who really understands the subject matter and you allow yourself to really go deep, you start to see the unfolding of incredible layers of depth and beauty that might not have been available to us when we were just seeing it on the surface. And so what I'm gonna ask us to do today is to allow ourselves to go deep uh, with with Judy, who's gonna be teaching um, both now and then again at lunch. We're gonna let her take a short break in between to get some food, Um, but to allow ourselves to go very deeply into the text so that we can see the incredible connections that are being made. And I wanna just share, and Judy, I hope this is okay, but. I, I, my part of my take on, on part of the reason why your work touches me so deeply as a teacher um, is because one of the driving questions um, for this scholar who we get to hear from today is what do we do with really painful dissonant texts from our tradition? We can all engage in a surface way and find surface justifications and excuses to still show great kavod, great honor to our Torah and sort of skip over the really hard parts. Um, but instead of, of just glossing over them and instead of rejecting them and instead of treating them like the great authority and then subsuming our own moral understanding 
in order to reconcile with the text, Judy suggests that there is another way. And that way is about going deeply, deeply into the text and finding what might be considered a kind of hidden meaning um, that ends up causing us to do a radical revision of the text and our understanding of it. And that is an incredible gift to all of us who have engagement uh, with Torah. And I am just so deeply grateful to you, Judy, for being my teacher, for being our community's teacher. What a blessing you are. And um, please come on up and show us uh, some of your learning today. Thank you so much, Rabbi Browse. It is such a privilege and an honor to be here and to know that uh, you so completely connect to and understand what I've been working really hard on. It really, really touches me very deeply. Thank you. Um, and thank you to this wonderfully vibrant, rocking kahila. It's just really j joyous to be here. Um, but does anyone have a copy of these sources? Yes, we're going to work a little. Um, and so much for the warm and fuzzy part of today's presentation. Um, okay, so let's start with this. Uh, let's face it, we, the Jewish people, have got lots of problems, um, right? We've got, I, speaking as an Israeli Jew, uh, we've got threats from Iran, both from the country Iran uh, and from its proxies on all of our borders. Um, we have been dealing with a horrific spike in terrorism with an unbearable human toll. And as Rabbi Brous just uh, alluded to, what you have going on here, as you know all too well, is the hideous specter of anti-Semitism that's gaining traction in the United States and abroad. It's almost un unthinkable what's been happening. Um, yet, despite all that, when asked what is the greatest danger facing the Jewish people today, our leaders have repeatedly given the same answer. And that is, there is the biggest problem by far, and in fact, the only problem that constitutes an existential threat to the Jewish people is our internal discord. The fact that we simply can't get along with one another. Uh, and tragically, more than ever, we are a people divided. Um, and in Israel, just speaking personally, I've lived in Israel, sometimes it shocks me to think about this, but I've lived in Israel for well over half of this country's existence on earth. Um, and and bef unless I forget to say this, I consider it a privilege, and, and I, there is not a day that goes by in all those 40-some years that I've been there that I don't feel just unbelievably grateful to be part of this amazing, miraculous country and to be part of contributing to something that is a work in progress. Um, having said that, I, in all the years that I've been there, have never seen this level of fracture before, and I have lived there through the, the murder of a prime minister. I've lived there through the Hitnat Kut, the disengagement from Gaza that was incredibly divisive. What we're, what we're looking at it today is something that's really unprecedented. Um, you don't need me to tell you what's going on here in the United States. I'll tell you what it looks like from afar, is that there's quite a split going on here too. Uh, mostly on, the, on, on politics, right and left. Um, and if all that isn't bad enough, the distance between Jews in Israel and Jews abroad is, is growing. The chasm is, is growing all the time, um, right? And, and uh, the de demographers have put it very crudely, very simply, uh, American Jews are moving to the left, Israeli Jews are moving to the right. Um, 
Okay, and of course, we all have really good reasons for promoting our own worldviews and for opposing the views of others. But the way that we're doing this is increasing the threat to our very existence. And uh, our former president in Israel, Ruvain Rivlin, he put it this way. He said, victory in the battle between us means losing the war of existence. Uh, right? You can win, but if you win, you lose. Um, and the only people who are really the big winners in this are our enemies. Like, for instance, um, the, the leader of Hezbollah in Lebanon, Hassan Nasrallah, a great terrorist himself, who said the following. He said, for the first time, we are hearing from the Zionist entity a fear of civil war, of bloodshed and nearing the point of explosion. When they speak of the collapse of the Zionist entity, they are talking about a limit of 80 years. The state will not survive more than that. And there are people, some of our leaders who have, who have done their research and noted that in fact, as a, when we've lived autonomously as a Jewish people, 80 years is about the lifespan that we've made it before we have imploded. Um, and so that is something that is very sobering and cause for, for deep concern. And what I want to do with you here, I'm, I'm really not here to describe the situation. I'm here as a, as a Bible teacher. Um, and I want to always, what plagues me is why. Why is this? Why can't we get along with each other? Um, and I think the best way to begin addressing this is to go all the way back to the Bible where we find the first traces of this problem. And that's why you have these sources in front of you. Um, this, the book of Genesis begins its story with a nuclear family. And I would say it's nuclear in two ways, right? It's made up of a father and a mother and two children, two sons. But it's also nuclear in that it is, it is explosive. It's going to, it's going to, it's going to detonate, um, right? The, the first family um, contains brothers who, who, who can't get along to such an extent that one of them ends up killing the other one. Um, and as we move our way through the book of Genesis, we're met with these two terrible bookends where the story begins, the book begins with this, this divisive family. Um, it continues on with other sets of siblings who can't get along with each other, Isaac and Ishmael, Jacob and Esau, culminating at the end of the book with Joseph and his brothers. And there, while we don't have an actual fratricide at the end of the book, we get pretty dangerously close to it. Um, so again, the question is why? Why do we start with this? And why also, why siblings? Why does the Bible focus its, its discussion of the inability of people to get along with, with siblings? And I want, to, I want to suggest two things. First of all, I think it, the, 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 the book of Genesis wants to make the point that on some level, we're all siblings. If we trace ourselves back far enough, we all start in that same house. And second, and this, this point's a little more, a little more uh, edgy, perhaps, and that is that it seems to be that there is something fundamentally fraught about this relationship, the relationship between siblings. I think the text is somehow communicating that to, that to us. So let's start with the first story. If you look on your page at source number one, um, and unfortunately, because this is at Drusha, we'll, we'll have a little more time at lunch to really learn more deeply, but here we'll just get a sense of what's going on. Uh, we're going to skip ahead to the murder, the murder scene itself. And as you'll notice, as we read it together, verse in source number one on your page, there's something very unusual about the way that this story is told. Um, here's how, here's how we, the, 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 the record of the murder appears in the text. 
ויאמר קין אל הבל אחיו. קין said to Abel his brother, ויהי ביותם בשדה, when they were in the field, ויקום קין אל הבל אחיו ויהרגהו. And Cain arose over Abel, his brother, and killed him. What's wrong with this verse? What? What did he say? Right? If you have A said to B, we're waiting for the quote. What did he say? But instead, we shipped the venue to the field where he kills him. So everybody, all the commentators throughout the generations want to know, what, what, what's, the, what's the missing piece of text here? What's going on? Um, okay, so... To fill in this gaping hole, we've got Midrash, and it is often the job of the Midrash to fill in gaping holes and to speculate as to what might belong here. And the Midrash does a beautiful job. It's not on your page. I didn't want to scare you when giving you a drasha to think that we had five pages of sources, so I'm just going to tell it, tell it to you very quickly. Basically, what the Midrash does is it posits three different theories as to what they were arguing about. What are they arguing about, asks the Midrash. Okay. Um, theory number one, they were arguing about who gets, right, two brothers dividing up the earth, who gets the land, and who gets the movable objects. And they're arguing and arguing, and as a result of this argument, Cain arose over Abel, his brother, and killed him. That's scenario number one. Theory number two is what are they arguing about? They're arguing about in whose territory will the holy temple eventually be built, And in the middle of that argument, Cain arose over Abel, his brother, and killed him. Argument number three, theory number three, with, with apologies, this is a little awful, uh, they suggest that they're arguing about the mother, right? Basic arithmetic, the Bible presents us with four human beings. Three of them are men, one of them is a woman. Who gets the mother? I'm sorry, I apologize. Okay, I had the privilege of studying this midrash, this text, for the first time with my teacher, um, Professor Nechama Leibovitz of Blessed Memory. And she urged us to uh, look at this in the abstract. And she said, what, what is it that the Midrash is trying to convey with these three scenarios? And basically what she ended up teaching was that um, if, you, if you think about, like the Midrash is kind of pausing. The first murder is about to take place. The first murder, the first war, if you will, And it's stepping back, it's encouraging the reader to take a pause, step back and say, what makes people do this? Why do people kill each other? How could this keep on happening? And the answer lies in one of these three things. Think about it. What's the first one? Who gets the land? Who gets the movable objects? Land and stuff. Argument number two, the holy temple. What's that? Religion. And number three, who gets the mother? Sex, land, Religion, sex. Think of a war, any war in human history. I, 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 I challenge you to come up with one that doesn't fit into one of those two categories. Basically, the Midrash is trying to make a statement about why we keep on doing this to each other. But Rashi doesn't, isn't having any of it. If you look at source number two, Rashi, who is devoted to finding and uncovering the plain sense of the text, looks at this and says, no, I'm aware of all those Midrashim, but none of them relate to the plain sense of this text, what actually was said here. He engaged in contentious words with him to create a pretext to kill him. Rabashi is looking at the, at the text and saying, the question that the Midrash keeps asking is the wrong question. What were they arguing about? He looks at the text, who's arguing? What does the text actually say? What? Cain said to Abel, his brother, there is no two side. There's no dialogue here. They're not having a conversation. They're not having an argument. It's one brother 
in, 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 in essence, weaponizing his words, using them not as a, as a form of communication, not as a, as a tool of communication, but as, as, a, as, a, as an implement so that he can just whip up uh, the, 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 the emotions and end up killing his brother. Basically, if I could just extrapolate what Rashi's doing here, he's basically order, he's offering us a fourth source of war, and we might say the one that underlies all others. And that is when dialogue, when communication breaks down, that's when the red flags start flying, and that's when the danger zone, that's when people enter the, the danger zone, that's where violence ensues, that's where wars happen. Now, if, we're gonna, if we will fast forward from this, and we have to do this just in the interest of time, um, to the end of the book, where we've got, again, not a, not a full fratricide, but, but a, a, a real threat of fratricide, Joseph, the story of Joseph and his brothers. If you look at source number three on your page, um, here, and if we, I, 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 as Rabbi Brass mentioned, I love looking at the connections between stories, and I think there are tremendous numbers of parallels between the story of Cain and Abel and the story of Joseph and his brothers. Um, and I, I often like to ask, who is, if you had to look at Joseph, is he more like Cain or is he more like Abel? What would you say just off the bat? Joseph is more like which one? Abel. Abel, why? Okay, he's the victim. He's the one who's going to find himself underground. He's the victim. He, we might argue he's the one who's most loved by, right? Abel is more is favored by God, hated by his sibling. Joseph is, is loved more by his father, hated by his siblings. Uh, so that, I think that that's the, the more natural connection to be made. Also, the name Yosef, and when Hevel, Abel is born, we're told Vatosef, the, the mother continues. That, that's, okay, that's for another time. In any case, he seems to be more like, more like Abel, but He's also, and what I find more intriguing, he's also a little bit like Cain. And I think noticing that similarity between Joseph and both of them tells us that it's never in sibling rivalry, it's never a zero-sum game. It's not that one is all right and one is all wrong. There's a little bit of Cain and Abel in everybody. And so here, how is he like? How is he like Cain? And let's look at source number three. The first, the, when we first meet Joseph... He's more, more, more loved than his brothers by the father. Okay, this is not recommended, but that's, again, for another time. Even though he is preferred by his father, he presses his advantage over them by bringing evil reports about them to their father. Okay, now here, I think we've got a little bit of Cain, right? Cain is talking not with his brother, but at his brother. Vayomer Kain El Hevel Achiv, talking at him as a pretext to killing him, one-sided conversation. Here, what we have is a brother who is not talking with his brothers, but talking about them, circumventing them, telling tales about them to the father to gain advantage, even greater advantage over them. Okay, and this is also going to be a very, very dangerous activity on his part. Uh, because appropriately, as we see still in source number three, what's the brother's response to this? They hated him. They could not speak peacefully to him. And I think there's something, there's something very natural about this, very deserved, right? He's using his speech in order to assert his power over them. And their natural, almost natural response is to say, well, we're not going to talk to you at all. We're going to withdraw our speech from you 
And we get the sense here again, the red flags are out. Here the brothers are not able to speak to one another. Is violence going to follow? In fact, it does where they, you, you know the story. He ends up in a pit, sold into slavery, etc., etc. Um, okay, so the, the bookends of the book of Genesis tell the story in very similar ways. Uh, where, where the absence of dialogue plays a pivotal role in the, in the, in the disintegrating relationship between brothers. Um, and if we look at these two bookends, I think the, the reader has the natural response is, what are we supposed to do about this, right? Is sibling communication, is sibling peace even possible? Can this violence be avoided? And I think in looking at this, there is a guiding word, a word that recurs my second favorite technique in studying Bible, my first favorite technique is looking at the conversation that's going on between stories. My second favorite is to notice words that repeat themselves insistently within a short amount of textual space. In the story of Cain and Abel, the word brother, little word in Hebrew, ach, appears no fewer than seven times. Cain said to Abel, his brother, Cain arose over Abel, his brother. Kind of ha- the text hammers this home. He's his brother, he's his brother. And the one level, why do, why do we need that repetition? First of all, I think to raise our sense of horror, this is not, any murder is really in some sense an act of, of, of sibling violence. It's one sibling raising a hand against another. We start as siblings, we continue as siblings. This is fratricide whenever it happens. And I think the second piece of it, and this is going to give rise to a bit of a, if you're going to let me have my a little uh, rant, um, I, to, the, the, the main issue that I want to get to here is that there seems to be, with this re- repetition of the word sibling in this book, a suggestion that there is something particularly fraught about this relationship. This is the one we've got to look out for. So what is it about the sibling relationship that's so, that's so difficult? Okay, I want to start with all due caveats um, that sibling relationship can be among the most trusted the most comforting, the most enriching, the most enduring, cradle to grave, it's the best relationship ever, yet. Um, At the same time, we can also feel that our sibling relationships are a little too close for comfort. And I've collected a couple of interesting quotes about this. Um, A 20th century author by the name of Jane Mursky Leader puts it like this. We know one another's faults, virtues, catastrophes, mortifications, triumphs, rivalries, desires, and how long we can each hang by our hands to a bar. We have been banded together under peck codes and tribal laws. Our siblings push buttons that cast us in roles we felt sure we had let go long ago. The baby, the peacekeeper, the caretaker, the avoider. It doesn't seem to matter how much time has elapsed or how far we have traveled. Right? Often we, yes, anybody relate to this? I do. Um, Sometimes we feel insecure. We have worked so hard to carefully construct the way we want to appear in life, this persona. And our siblings who know us in the deepest, darkest ways can make us feel threatened and and unworthy. Um, But, and here comes the terrible paradox, I think, of of the sibling relationship, that in in addition to feeling sometimes uncomfortably close, we can also feel paradoxically that we're never quite close enough. Um, And here's another 20th century author who says, our siblings, they resemble us just enough to make all their differences confusing and at times infuriating and even threatening, right? So here's the conundrum. 
right? Because they, they, we expect them to be precise duplicates of us. Uh, and when they veer even the, the slightest amount, it seems to be a betrayal of the choices that we've made, these precise choices, our values. Um, and that leads us to this impossible sibling conundrum. They threaten us by being too close and by not being close enough. And if we look around at the, at the world today, most conflicts, I would say, are extensions of this sibling conundrum. Uh, on the world stage, if you look at most world conflicts, look at it, it's, it's countries that share a border, it's, 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 it's uh, populations that live within, within the same border, um, and sometimes the sides are so, so similar that an outside simply wouldn't be able to tell the difference. And if you think of it in terms of a Venn diagram, you might see 90, two, two populations with 90% in common, of, of everything in common, 10% different. But what are they hyper-focused on is all only that 10%. And when I think about this, I often think about the terrible slaughter in the, in the 1990s in Rwanda between the Hutus and the Tutsis who both spoke the same exact dialect of the Bantu language, but all they could see, right, and from an outside perspective, you couldn't, nobody, you could, we wouldn't know the difference, but the difference, that 10% difference was all they could see to such an extent that it led to the slaughter of over a million Tutsis. People kill each other over those differences. You're like me, but you're not enough like me, and so I have to eliminate you. And if you look at, 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 our, at the Jewish world today, I would say in Israel, uh, many of our leaders have noted that if we had to do, put together our own Venn diagram, we would have about 70% of basic issues in common. Um, yet, in, I, I can only speak about what's going in Israel. What we, what we tend to do is hyper-focus on that 30% that divides us. And it's not only in the political sphere. Of course, it's in the religious sphere as well. Anybody who is a centimeter to the right of me is what? a fanatic, anybody a centimeter to the left of me is obviously a heretic, right? It's the difference between truth and the betrayal of truth. And if you'll just indulge me for a moment to just confess my own personal test that I have uh, experienced and failed numerous times, I like to call it the El Al test. Um, and here's the following scenario that has happened to me literally at least five times. I travel a lot. Um, and I, often what happens is I'm standing uh, in line for this earnest young security officer to ask me a lot of questions, um, and I'm next in line, and I'm standing there, and often just a few steps behind me is the next person in line, who is often a gentleman um, in full Hasidic garb. And the young security person looks at me, looks at the guy behind me, takes us both in and says, in Hebrew, Atem biyachad, are you together? And I'm thinking, has this woman lost her senses? Do I look anything like this guy? And she's looking at us and she's saying, well, yeah, you know, two, you know, religious Jews with shmatas on their heads coming from the land of the Jews a certain age. Yeah, they look exactly the same. Now, I don't know who says it faster, me or this guy, but we both go, no, no, we don't have anything. It got, no, absolutely not together. Okay, I would like to say right here and now, my own challenge, I take this upon myself next time, that person asks me this question, and inevitably it will happen. I'm going to take a deep breath and say yes in a very deep and enduring way. We are together. Now, I don't know how this guy is going to react to that. That's his own. He can do his own work. That's not up to me. Anyway, I, I just want to say this. I, as, as, these, as our religious and political gaps are widening, um, the, our, our 
possibilities for communication are shrinking. And I think this is a terribly dangerous combination. Um, we are increasingly encasing ourselves in our little echo chambers where we pipe in only opinions that we already hold. Um, and I think when I think about Joseph and Vayidaber al, how he speaks not to his brothers, but about them, that's what we're doing. We're excluding the people who disagree with us, but we're talking bad, bad, saying terrible things about them in their absence, not engaging in any form of dialogue. And I think that, that Cain's Vayomer El, the speaking at, we have that as well, where people are increasingly shouting or silencing, shutting down the possibility for communication. And both of these things are really, are really um, increasing the problem tremendously. And I would say even much more troubling than that is the very notion that we are siblings. And I'm finding this as I travel in communities, especially I've met Hillel directors who have told me that a lot of the students that they're meeting are, don't, don't buy into the basic assumption that we are part of one household. Um, and that's a case that we are going to have to take very seriously, make that case very deliberately and very articulately. Um, okay, I want to I move toward a hopeful note because, first of all, I know how frustrating it is to have a, a speaker get up here and describe all kinds of problems and then say, good luck with that. Um, I will be here for lunch if you'd like to hear. I do have some ideas about what to do. Um, but for now, I want to get just from the text itself to something hopeful. And that is in source number four. Finally, after 13 wrenching chapters in the book of the conflict between Joseph and his brothers, he finally, we finally get to the big reveal, right, where Joseph finally tells his brothers they think he's the viceroy of Egypt, and he says, actually, I'm your brother. And Joseph says to his brothers in source number four, draw near to me, and they drew near. Okay, this is a very different Joseph that we're meeting here. After spending some time in the house of Potiphar, after being humbled by his, his own experiences, he reveals his true identity. And what you don't have here on the page is that the brother's immediate response to this brother who was more powerful than even he ever imagined he was be, is that they were unable to answer him because they were terrified. And in response to that, the old Joseph would have said, great, that's exactly where I want you. I want you speechless and humbled. But this time Joseph says, no, come close. And they go close. And he says, I am Joseph, your brother, you will dwell in the land of Goshen and be close to me, and I will provide for you. Basically, this Joseph is saying, not only do I want to stay close to you, do I not want to beat you, win over you by, 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 by overpowering you into silence, because that leads only to further conflict. I want to draw you close, and I think this is also, in a sense, a belated response to Cain's rhetorical impudent question at the beginning of the book, am I my brother's keeper? Here is Joseph saying, I am your keepers. I'm going to take care of you. I'm not only going to draw close to you, but I feel responsible for sustaining you. Okay. And, and, I, and, and I think after this, we get to what, what would have appeared to be a very strange anticlimax to the whole book. But I think if we look at it the way that we have, this makes a lot of sense. The final source on your page, where Joseph falls on Benjamin's neck and cries on him, and everybody's falling on each other's necks and crying, kissing, kissing them. And then one of the great anticlimaxes of all time, the Asarechen Dibru Echavito. Afterwards, his brothers spoke to him. But if you think about it in this context, this is precisely the ending that we needed to draw, but kind of symmetry to the story. 
where at first they withdrew their speech from him because of the way that he was abusing his speech. And now they see that he's finally willing to use speech for reconciliation. And so they restore that speech to him. Well, we end up with the book, as we leave the book, I think we're, we're left with a sense of, of hope that the dialogue, and this is not the end of the story, it's not like a total happy ending, but what we do have is the first glimmer of hope that with dialogue, real, real uh, connection is entirely possible. And I want to just move toward conclusion by reminding everyone how very um, deeply entrenched this concept in our, in our tradition is this concept of two-sided conversation. Um, I live and breathe in the biblical text, and if you open up a book of the Bible, the way that we study it, there it's a remarkable piece of, of writing where you've got two lines at the top that are the, the primary text, and a hundred lines underneath of this incredibly vibrant cross-generational debate respectful but heated cross-generational debate. That's how we deal with each other. We talk, we criticize, but we never ever stop the conversation. And I think that's something that we, we, uh, we need to keep in mind. Um, and I, I, yeah, okay. Um, the, seeing the hopeful sides of this in Israel, I'll just say one thing about it, which is that maybe things had to get this bad to start to get a little bit better. And there are all kinds of efforts that are being started. One that I'm particularly proud of is a niece of mine has started something called a group of people gathering in living rooms on a regular basis, people from across the, spe the political spectrum sitting together and discussing things, not holding anything back, just but, but, but facing each other and saying the worst and, and, and talking through it. And I love the, 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 the name that she gave to this forum, which is straight out of the Joseph story, Anashim Achim Anachno, we are, we are siblings. Um, okay, so I just want to leave you with my prayer that like Joseph and his brothers, maybe now we're finally entering a phase of the Acharethein Dibru Echavito. After all the mess, the siblings begin to talk to each other. Um, I leave you with Yehirat Son. May these conversations take root and flourish, um, and may, be, may they be always conducted amidst a great sense of siblinghood, and we, may we ultimately be able to say in the deepest sense and mean it, anachnu biyasad, we really are truly together. Thank you, and Shabbat Shalom. It's Rabbi Brass again. Thank you so much for listening. Want more content like this? I hope you'll subscribe. And please consider making a contribution to Ikar so we can continue to work toward the fulfillment of our mission to reanimate Jewish life, to embody moral courage, to nurture the spirit, and to work to decipher what it means to be a human being in the world today. Visit our website at ikar.org. That's I K A R.org. And I hope to see you, maybe even in person, sometime soon. <laughs>